Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. JFK, RFK, John Lennon, MLK, Malcolm X, extended clip, all victims of the CIA's treacherous and heinous crimes. Wow. Hey, man, the people have spoken. Dang. We're kind of like Q- the QAnon film podcast or something like that. That's kind of the... the that the fans seem to that's how they see us so i'll lean into it i'm for look i just want this <laughs> senseless violence on both sides to stop yeah. griffin and david need to be the bigger men and come here and apologize to us <laughs> yeah we're crying and we need you to say we're so, you're sorry sorry for their, the actions of their abusive fans so true welcome to extended clip episode 92 i'm one of your hosts eddie averill i'm malcolm bomb i'm jt white in our double feature this week, uh, we're going to talk about Chameleon Street, the 1989 film by Wendell B. Harris Jr. And then we're going to talk about 99 River Street, the 1953 film by Phil Carlson. Malcolm. Yeah. Aside from purely being from the streets, <laughs> uh, what, what brought these two films to the pod for you? Well, you know, I was I was searching for a double feature, and I, I decided to go back into old habits, kind of just go a, a, a title based double feature, and th- and those are fun. So, uh, and street just came up as the subject, and I was like, you know, but it works because you know we're we're a young up and coming podcast, and we got our feet on the street. You know, we're we're walking around, you know, trying to get get noticed. You know, we have that young man's gumption. And uh, a young man goes outside when he has gumption. And uh, so that's why I chose these two two movies. And also, you know, some other uh, linkage happens. They're both uh, independent movies, two very good independent movies. And uh, so, you know, we love the ho- classic Hollywood. You know, we love the various studio systems. But, uh, you know, we're going to a film festival this upcoming week. So I thought we'd get uh, a little bit more familiar with the independence of films. Yeah, the the bean-wars of Phil Carlson. Total film festival garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This fi- I'm tired of seeing this film noir crap at every fucking film festival I go to. JT, how'd you like these movies? Oh, it was great. A really fun time. I think like all of the Malcolm, like Malcolm, your selections this week, including the Patreon, they're like, they're all low key bangers for a variety <laughs> of ways. Like you picked like some, uh, like, I don't know. We do big pictures sometimes like solo and like things that like um, you're going to know about. But it's nice when we can highlight the forgotten man's films and uh Give a shout out to to the ones left behind. Yeah, this is definitely one of the more obscure double features we've done in a while. Um, but I hope that doesn't like discourage listeners from seeking out these films because they're really great. Like uh, especially Tubi's uh, presentation of the many wives of Henry Lafay. But you know, we'll talk about that on the after hours feed. It's not the many wives; it's the six wives. I had to get that correction in. Jeez. Um, oh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, also, I feel like, you know, a lot of these movie podcasts, they don't actually like movies. You know, they review bad movies to kind of make fun of them. And I guess I'm guilty of doing that with uh, <laughs> Henry LaFay. But uh, <laughs> but so maybe don't trust me. But uh, 
you know, why don't we actually love movies? And instead of, you know, picking, you know, some shit that everyone knows about, why don't we, you know, maybe we could introduce something, especially like Chameleon Street. Chameleon Street's a, a forgotten movie, really. It never really got the distribution, uh, though a lot of people reacted to it at the time, you know, in very positive ways. And um, so I don't know. And also, you know, if you can't find these movies, hit us up. We'll, uh, That's very true. We'll, we'll, and these movies might be a little bit harder to find. Um, although Henry Lefay is on Tubi, very easy. But uh, so, yeah. so hit us up. I, I had to even hit Malcolm up for Chameleon Street. I'm not. I'm not too. Uh, I. 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 I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, you know. You know the saying. Yeah, <laughs> dude. I know. Yeah. And <laughs> I am not too proud to beg. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I gave him a RAR file because beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> Chameleon Street, though, it's a very apt pick with us going festival mode next week because this is one of the very few great films to uh, be a Sundance smash, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this and Sex Lies, and it's like, what else? And I guess both of this and Sex Lies and Videotape both came out in 1989. Mm -hmm. uh, but Chameleon Street, written, directed, starring Wendell B. J. Wendell B. Harris Jr., it's it's a really one of a kind film. It's it's a Zelig like uh, account of a man who changes his uh, personality and appearance based on the needs of his milieu at the time. It's it's a classic con artist story. It's a movie that dramatically does not really follow the guidelines of filmmaking. It's a almost essayistic film. Uh, the the narrative approach I was almost reminded of F for Fake uh, with just like the uh, the way that his narration can transition you from one scene to the next in the story that he's telling you. It's uh it's quite a picture. Before choosing this film, I didn't really know much about it, uh, other than you know uh, it beat a uh, former friend and kind of distant uh, past of the podcast with Stillman's Metropolitan at uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, but uh, yeah, I feel like this is like, it's it's almost like, uh, almost radically itself, you know, this movie. It's really um, doing a lot of things to stand out from a lot of other movies. You know, you know, you mentioned its structure. It really is just kind of dependent on the neuroses of uh, Douglas Street, our main character. And uh, I think it takes, that takes it to very interesting places. There's a lot of, uh, I like how, uh, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of these movies are kind of about individual characters. They kind of go out of your way to ingratiate themselves to the character or like, I don't know, like give them, you know, garner a little bit of sympathy. And I guess you get that with like the beginning phases. But I think what's great about this movie is that um, we get to see Douglas Street kind of indulge his worst habits and uh, and he, and him following these habits are kind of like a way of him kind of examining parts of life that he feels he couldn't have accessed otherwise. He doesn't quite have access to, and he kind of operates with that, you know, uh, in mind. And so, yeah, I think this it's a it's a movie that's willing to go a lot of different places, and I'm willing to follow it wherever. And I yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's like I don't know watching this. It's like. This is a particularly baffling film because, like what you're saying, Malcolm, it's all its own in both its, like, stylistic choices and then, like, the form of it all. It's like, I don't know, I was definitely enjoying it a lot, but it's like, 
a puzzling amount of like pieces that sort of feel like um, loose sketches at point that at points that all flow together really well, like ultimately at the end. And I think like, I don't know, definitely hit at like it's doing like the Zelig style thing, but I think in a more effective way to like hit at things like class and race and the way I, I don't know, people adapt and shape to themselves to fit in there in that respect. And I think like, I don't know, the narration like took me by surprise in the beginning just because I was like, I, one of my notes I wrote down was like, is this like, is this man an alien like early on? Because <laughs> yeah. it's just like such an, uh, a weird non-human way of processing the world. I, I really love the way that his uh, narration will interrupt dialogue. And as you said, is he alien? You know, he has a very unique view of the world and interpersonal relationships. And so anytime he's talking to anyone, he is indulging in his chameleon habits uh, and his monologue seems to be the only place where we see how he truly feels about things. And uh, the, the speech patterns that he employs definitely reflect that versus the speech patterns that he employs when he's talking to other people. Very early on in this film, uh, we see him installing uh, alarm equipment or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he's hanging out in a van and it's a really great scene with him and his coworker. And it, it seems like he's really familiar with the coworker, but it clearly being a put on, you know, uh, being revealed by his voiceover really took me aback in that scene. And another thing that took me aback in that scene is, of course, when his coworker is <laughs> ogling a picture of a young lady, and uh, or many pictures of a young lady, and the source for a sample uh, from the Mos Def and Talib Kweli album uh, came about, and that always takes me aback when I'm watching. Bad. Got that good hair, too. You like what? I like girls with that light complexion look. Oh, man. You're a moron. I can't help it. What, being a moron? Yeah, that too. You're the first one out there with a dashiki talking that crap. I'm a victim. Good hair. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. problem. You're a victim. Hey. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> but you know how eventually conditioned hair will go back to king. Meaning what? Eventually you're going to end up dating a dark-skinned girl? I didn't say that. Yeah, you know, I was looking into kind of like the history of this film, and it's kind of like notorious for being... Uh, you know, kind of like critics kind of failing and audiences failing this movie or distributors, you know, it didn't get distributed, but it did play on television in like the 1990s, you know, which is so maybe that's how and most stuff might have been at the film festival, though, too. You can't count that out. You never know. You never know. <laughs> no, but the the criticism I saw some of it was like based around the dramatic I don't want to say ineptitude, but the refusal to abide by traditional like Hollywood narrative drama, mm -hmm. just on a typical scene by scene basis. There's maybe one or two normal scenes in this movie, <laughs> like where uh, there's a goal that a character has and they negotiate with a person to get the goal or to get some new information or whatever. It's almost always chopped up with either 
you know, a cutaway to another story or a narrative, uh, or sorry, a voiceover narration or some editing that really takes you out of it. And I, I really like that because it's all like in one grand sweeping narrative that Harris is telling, even if it feels disjointed compared to how films usually unspool that information. And I, I think this makes sense too, given, you know, the strangeness of the main character and kind of uh, the aimlessness to some of his, you know, uh, things that he gets up to. Like something like the 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 school scene or whatever, you know, it's kind of like, I don't even know why he's there. Like he kind of just wants to like, you know, fuck with some kids, prove that like uh, he could just speak gobbledygook French and like, uh, you know, they would eat yeah. it up. I think a, a comparison of the movie is kind of like The Devil Probably, where we see, you know, this guy kind of going into institutions, institution with kind of like uh, a cynical distance and kind of just observes these people and their kind of uh, their uh, comfort you know, their comfort and mediocrity or just like just being, I don't know, he, he has, he definitely has like a negative view on people and it's, it's, you know, it's given by like how they treat them where it's like negative or just, it feels, sometimes it just feels off the way people treat them. Yeah. And that the segment at school uh, is at Yale in Connecticut, which he, you know, that's his destination after escaping prison in Detroit uh, partway through the movie and uh, so that's just like one of the many places where he kind of starts over and it's a, a motif of just trying to blend himself into these new environments and very successfully doing so. Like even when he's pretending to speak French because he watched one French girl on PBS talking over and over, uh, even when he gets caught by a Belgian kid, he just like outswags him and just like it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> and uh i i love that scene like that whole segment of the film is great he goes to see beauty and the beast the uh Jacques, uh or sorry the jean cocteau version and then he dresses up as the beast at like this masquerade party and i don't know the the stylistic approach to that masquerade party is incredible i i love that no yeah there's like a just a, a like a a big appreciation for culture and just like I don't know, uh, like movies, books, music that's within this movie that, you know, I really do appreciate. And it, it does, you know, I feel like for this being like a movie that uh, rests on the shoulders of this individual and kind of follows where it goes, it, I think that's a good move to kind of, you know, that's that's the perfect time where you kind of let these characters indulge in like their, you know, cinephilia, talk about, uh, you know, uh john cookto or you know talk about like the or cool wearing a bauhaus t-shirt exactly yeah <laughs> i noticed that i think that's that this is this the the framework that's presented here is the perfect opportunity for that kind of indulgence and i think it just adds more uh depth to the character absolutely because i feel like i mean i said earlier that it was like a movie that sort of feels like sketches but i think it's that like so much of the film is like with the headspace of the character where it's like each scene I feel like sort of flows with like what like change he's trying to make and just like the plot moves as his thought process does and like what he has to do to adapt into a new situation. So it's just like, I know it's very neat that you get to explore his cultural fascinations there as well and sort of indulge in that because he is sort of like a, a, a hoity toity kind of an effect uh, a real Frasier-like gentleman. <laughs> <laughs>
and of these many escapades that he goes on one of which is basically posing as a sports journalist because he wants to fuck a really hot female athlete uh, and he interviews her for three hours uh and that's a really great scene uh and like all of these things you know he can pretend to be an interviewer for the time uh or for time magazine rather and he can fit into a medical institution to the point where he's operating uh, open, uh, or not open heart, but some sort of surgery on a woman. Yeah, he's doing hysterectomies. Hysterectomies, yeah. Left and right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like both more grounded than something like Zelig or Catch Me If You Can, but also that like essayistic and es- expressive style, uh, m- like... I don't really know how to get at it because like it it doesn't need to feel grounded or realistic or anything like that. And I think that the the stylistic approach really helps. I like, I I think it's just, there's like a a big avoidance of convention within kind of just the main character and just like, you know, technique and what, whatnot. I mean, like, I think one thing I do like about this movie, it does avoid coverage when possible, you know, and, and, um, there's a lot of great scene transitions too. Like I, I like these kind of like documentary style, um, you know, black background, sh- you know, straight to camera addresses about his emotions. And, but uh, also just like, uh, I don't know, like the early kind of like uh rhythmic kind of cut to the trains in the beginning too. There's just, this movie's really, you know, kind of like, uh, just, like, like I think sketch isn't like a one way to put it, but it is like, it's almost like, um what like he's just trying something different in each scene and just those transitions with the trains are great it's like he he also uses it as um just like to pass time as well like Mm -hmm. he'll have he has a couple of pretty long scenes in a very dimly lit dank bar uh where they're just drinking cheap beer all night and uh he, he there's a couple scenes where it's just like the just the pleasure of a very dimly lit bar or restaurant and drinking cheap beer with your homies or your girlfriend uh very, very much like shows the love uh for that feeling but to to pass time between snippets of conversation uh he will just cut away to you know just a half a second shot of a train passing by uh and these transitions are so crazy and jarring uh and sometimes he'll use that within a scene to pass time sometimes he'll use it as a transition from one location to the next and uh he never really locks down into one like particular editing rhythm where you can kind of predict uh how a scene's gonna play out like he's always doing something new uh to the point where i was shocked at the ending not at Uh what happened but but that the movie was over. Like, I couldn't believe that the credits were rolling, you know? It was too easy. It was too easy. Maybe you're asking yourself, well, how could he continue to operate in Detroit after he'd been exposed on TV and all? Answer's very simple. People forget. No, yeah, this is a movie that could have easily gone on for, like, three hours. Could have even ended (laughs) when uh, he's playing you know that great knife placing with uh, his daughter at the end which is kind of oh i mean it's a, an amazing scene but also like a scene that's very similar to that before that um at, at least in um well actually no that scene is kind of it individuates itself from the rest of the movie i would have to say but um the scene where uh 
they're in him and his girlfriend is in the bar is in the bar and like some you know white fat bozo just starts harassing him and uh there's such a like but beforehand before you know you get you know this uh very like goofy racist guy coming up and you know up to him you have him you know telling his girlfriend like don't ever get fat or i will leave you or whatever <laughs> and, 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 and and it's and it's i feel like this movie is just just willing to antagonize it's willing to do a lot and it's never gonna you know let you kind of settle in one space and i think that that sequence of events is like a, a perfect example where you kind of get him being a jerk but then you know you have someone who's obviously also a jerk you know maybe worse than him uh come up come up to him and uh so you just there's difficult emotions you know that you get through both of these that can't really be easily answered mm -hmm. and i i love how uh because you were talking about the dark background kind of confessionals where he's talking to camera and that does kind of almost blend into those very dark interiors where he's either at a restaurant or at a bar uh, and he's just speaking very bluntly uh, to his wife or his friends. And uh, then they also go to couples counseling at one point. And the editing in that scene is incredible because it's the same setup where each of them have a single shot with a totally black background. Uh, but he keeps fading one on top of the other to at first make it look like they're sta standing or sitting next to each other. But then blending it more and more over the course of the scene. And then, of course, he doesn't just get rid of that footage. We see that scene like a couple more times. He'll just cut back to that footage for half a second. And uh, I don't know, the the like fleeting editing of this uh, is, is really incredible. There are a lot of like very small moments that um, just, I don't know, sometimes they're repeated, sometimes they're not. But I feel like even more than uh, how impressed I was with uh, Harris's ability to stretch this narrative out or really to to spin this yarn the way he did uh, and to have such a great performance. I, I was more impressed with just like the small uh, grace notes like that, like between him and his wife, even mo more of a comedic scene than a grace note. But when he does a Barry White impression, uh, just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, just in terms of like the small pleasures of this movie, there is just like a lot of uh, great lines of like throwaway dialogue that are just hilarious too, and like um, are sold by like a lot of like the the funny characters that uh you know Douglas Street encounters. I mean, just like a a couple of, like a couple of things that stay stay with me. Like I I remember like the lawyer he dislikes at the firm just says uh, vitamin E makes me sexy and then pops the pill or whatever. Just so like uh, just so like. <laughs> annoying and just like uh kind of <laughs> off kilter and just uh i think that just in a very small s snippet you kind of get uh douglas street's distaste for this new office culture he's entering and i think yeah. there's a lot of feelings and emotions that are expressed through like just these small one uh, one-off type of like uh line reads or something like that i think one uh thing that we haven't touched on is when he does go to prison uh, it's a really like great just 15 minute 
prison movie within this. Oh yeah, where he like he uh gets chummy with that one guy who has like a really fancy prison setup and he he's like he's think the the guy is trying is thinking that Douglas Street is going to fuck him, but the <laughs> way he like refuses that is so fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> I really love the setup too because it's like, "Oh man, I, I you know, he's complaining about how cold the bread is and then that guy gives him the bread at 4:30 in the morning when it's freshly baked and he's like yeah, dude, come to my cell. I got weed. I got, you know, I got TV. And he's like, dude, this is, this is sick. This is the best jail ever. <laughs> and also that, that scene is kind of like, um, like the Douglas street character. And like, I think this is something that Harris probably made a point of just never turns to violence either. Like you said, he's a very Frazier type character. Even when, uh, that, uh, that uh, I'm saying Frasier like I fucking know about Frasier. I've never watched Frasier in my life. But um, I mean, you can call any a fat man Frasier like. Yeah. Like I hate to say this, but Frasier gets more pussy than Douglas Street. <laughs> hey, Douglas Street was doing good, man. He was doing. I good. know this is just a compliment to Frasier. <laughs> Dang, I gotta check the show out then. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, even the scene where he's called the N word, where it's like. Something that where most people would be like, yeah, it's very justified to punch this bozo in the face. Like he's definitely like kind of making a point that he's going his own way. This is a man going his own way, but not, you know, not in the way it's currently known. But like, um, I mean, it's reflected in form, in the character and stuff like that. And like just the way he views uh, people, the way he talks to people. I love um, all the scenes with any psychiatrist, which I think is maybe only two. But uh it, it's it's street is very antagonistic and the last thing he wants to you know be is like defined so he'll keep on shape-shifting much like uh the protagonist of the devil probably his only illness is seeing too clearly <laughs> <laughs> i i you know i was kind of like taken aback when you made that comparison but now just the scenes with the psychiatrists alone for sure i can see that yeah yeah i mean in a way it's like douglas streets like he is processed through all of these systems but like is gen like by making his own identity so malleable he is like refusing to be a part of anything and just that like he can go wherever his whims please great movie you know shout out to you know fan favorite of the show uh armand white because he's someone who's definitely championed this movie throughout the years called it the best sundance winner uh i haven't looked at the list but i'll just say yeah it is and uh i mean i think i don't know i i, I do trend towards movies with kind of like this antagonistic tone kind of like the devil probably and uh this one where it's kind of like these very i don't know i guess defiant characters um who are just kind of uh unsatisfied with the results the world has given them and uh i don't know you could view that in a very negative way and that could be very self-centered but it's like i like these movies that are not satisfied with the the current cultural offering at the time and decides to pivot so four bullets uh this is his only movie unfortunately so someone else hey if you're a guy with money listening to this give him a shot throw him some money i want him to make another movie yeah i'm also giving this one four bullets uh, it was great and confusing and i want to like check it out again some point soon because i feel like there's so much that i've already either forgotten or just in the flurry of everything just whizzed by me but it's a really interesting and just like 
really funny. I think like I don't think we hammered that point across enough of just like I think it's when I think it might be when he's interviewing that woman when he asks uh, someone, have you ever had an orgasm? And just like, I don't know, there's sometimes like he has such a high opinion of himself, but he goes bozo mode like so <laughs> frequently. It's like so funny to see. And just I began to subtly steer the conversation into her personal life. Of course, the key word is subtle. Have you ever had an orgasm? What's it have to do with the cover story? I don't know. I think broadly, like, interrogates how much, like, identity is based on winging it. And, like, that, like, I don't know, he's able to convince people, like, generally based off of their pre-existing assumptions and, like, very little actual, like, ability and skill in some of these, in some instances. And, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. I am going to go three and a half bullets on this one. I think it is a very good movie. Probably a great movie, yeah. And uh, I, I think that the character study is just, like, really dense. And, like, I feel like that's clearly the, the strongest point of Harris's filmmaking is, like, understanding himself as a performer, kind of. Uh, but also, as I said, the editing is wonderful. And also the blending of different, like, textures, too. Like, there's some TV footage and home video footage and also like filming the TV screen itself. And uh, yeah, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to like, it's such a dense movie to pick apart. There's a lot of, a lot of fun threads to poke at while you're watching this one. So uh, check out Chameleon Street and we'll be right back. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. And we're back on extended clip. It's everyone's favorite segment. Eddie's website review. <laughs> been going on some websites recently, and I gotta say, two-week running champion, patreon.com slash extended clip. There, there's no website like uh, I've been going on Gmail. Uh, it used to be my favorite. Inbox has been a little dry lately. Uh, Patreon.com slash extended clip, however, one of my favorite websites really of all time. Like if we're talking, we're going way back to like a Homestar Runner in the, the era of, you know, the strong bad email, you know, 2002 or so. Um, we're talking early YouTube with all the Family Guy clips, Family Guy full episodes, even before they were taken away. Yeah, yeah. this might I this website <laughs> might be better than like a Family Guy DVD box set. Like I would well, say, let's not I mean, they're like ourselves. DVDs the, are almost always better than websites. They're like it's arguably I think you could probably find like season two of Family Guy at a thrift store. For maybe like five dollars, <laughs> how much could you find? <laughs> how much is the content on Patreon.com/slash Extended Clip? I bet that's oh, I bet that's twenty dollars. No, 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 no. You, you, oh, you, you. I can't even say it. Our, our, our sponsors over at Patreon will get so mad at me for saying the word that I want to call you <laughs> that they'll revoke the website segment. Um, it's two dollars a month. 
on patreon.com slash extended clip for a bonus episode every week uh the extended clip after hours feed uh and on the last one we talked about fort apache by john ford one of the greatest films ever really and in classic extended clip fashion uh what are we uh what are we talking about on the after hours feed this week well you know i uh i'm in a polyamorous relationship (laughs) No, no, I'm not. Um, not not that that's a joke either. But uh, um, <laughs> uh, uh, what do you call it? So I picked. Uh, you know, we've. I think time and time again, we've we've gone to Tubi because that's the only algorithm we trust. And it, dr- it drummed up for me the Six Wives of Henry LeFay. Now a lot of people are asking me this: Who is Henry LeFay? And how do you get all these women? Well, it's Tim Allen, and you know we got some of the wives are. Uh, Andy McDowell, Paz Vega. Um, there's only two names I remember right now. But it's, uh, you know, Tim Allen, someone we haven't really examined yet. So I thought we'd give him his due. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the Patreon. We've reviewed a lot of different movies. Um, there's minion porn. You know, there's illustrations. Hey, if you hit me up, I'll give you some sports betting. <laughs> 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 I'll give you I'll give you the picks <laughs> for this upcoming Friday. So, uh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. We, there, it's uh, there's a lot of features on this website, and the uh, the February edition of the extended clip PDF club is going to be so romantic. It's coming this week, and it is just going to be so romantic. <laughs> You're really going to want to rub one out to this one, folks. Get it for your loved ones if you forgot a Valentine's Day present for them. <laughs> I'm in a polyamorous relationship, by the way, too. I'm in love with the cinema, <laughs> and I'm in love with myself. <laughs> I'm in love say, with all three of you or all two oh. of you <laughs> well you can love yourself too <laughs> I'm in love with the money and the fame that extended clip has brought us I guess that's those are the. it's kind of like two and, two and two girls at the same time <laughs> and we're back on extended clip it's Malcolm in the middle after that, clearly everyone's favorite segment. Uh, <laughs> After our fucking three minute ad. <laughs> hey, 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 it's a website review. Segment, <laughs> That's okay? true. That's true. That's true. I spoke out of term. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's but you know what? I'm going to talk about the movies I watched this. Just one, actually. Not a lot, but uh, just one. movie. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about too many movies, but. I watched uh, I watched a movie with two titles, so it's kind of like I did watch multiple movies, but it's only one. It's Dead of Night, also known as Death Dream by Bob Clark. And what we got here is we got a young soldier coming home from Vietnam, or we got a young soldier who's pronounced dead in Vietnam and then suddenly shows up at his family's house unannounced. And this he's a little bit different. He's a little bit colder. He's uh, very mean to his family, and it seems like he's going down the wrong path. And, uh, yeah, you know, we got uh, Bob Clark, uh, director of A Christmas Story, but also um, the the Christmas slasher Black Christmas, another movie I'm a fan of. And I decided, like, it seemed like he had some pretty good horror chops, so that's why I decided to check this one out. And, you know, it's like, for the Vietnam narrative, it's pretty standard. It's just really mostly a setup to kind of get, like, this... Uh, ghoulish guy who's uh, affected by Vietnam and he kind of just starts killing people. Spoiler. And uh, yeah, it's just really good. There's a real like stark style to it. Like a lot of it is at night and like uh, 
We have the main character spending most of his time in a rocking chair in the dark, stuff like that. I'm sure a lot of the listeners, you know, could relate to that. So um, uh, check it out. If you have PTSD flashbacks from the Vietnam War, maybe don't check it out. But otherwise, I'd recommend it to anyone else. I, I honestly have to say that if you listen to Extended Clip and you have PTSD from the Vietnam War specifically, I am so sorry. <laughs> like, I have, I have fucked with you so much with my editing. And I'm sorry. <laughs> JT, well, have you watched anything good this week? Um, yeah, I have. I watched something very good, bef- like, oh. minutes before... We even started this podcast. I'm always mm-hmm. watching movies, trying to squeeze one in whenever I can. And uh, I don't know. I mean, we got dirty with Solo recently, but overall, I've been generally above board. I've been clean. I haven't been naughty. I've That's been good. That's on good my to best hear. behaviors. But uh, I today I watched Zoom Up, the Beaver Book Girl. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, uh, 1981 uh, Nakiatsu uh, Pinku film about um, like the plot is pretty loose and all over the place. It starts with like uh, the opening scene is like a sexual assault um, that occurs and the man leaves the woman money afterwards and then we cut ahead to the future where there's this like porno mag that like there's a, a photographer just taking a lot of pictures of a woman peeing and women peeing. So there's like, I don't know, some great cinematography of some piss shots, like the photographer yelling at his uh like lighting boy who also is like there to like fuck some of the women too for some shots to like get it fucking right like wh- why what's the point in like even getting this close to this art like while these women are pissing and then this one he he exhausts this one woman to where she can't even piss anymore it's crazy um but then it's revealed by like the boss of the photographer that in college the photographer was a master artist of rape and that like uh wi- like Every woman he did it with, he would fall in love with him, which oh is like, it's, it's fucking brutal. And everyone dismisses that in the office. Like everyone in the office is like, oh, that's not really true. That's shut up. That's stop. And uh, to be uh, fair, if someone did tell me that, I wouldn't believe him. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's crazy. From there, it just unfolds. A woman is following the photographer um, and it turns out to be uh, the woman he had raped in the beginning, and she is ready to rape him back. But like, there's a really like a really fucked up but kind of funny part there where she has him like tied up like in- underground, and she he's like chuckling to himself. He's like, he's like you can't rape me. I don't even get hard anymore. And uh, it's like. <laughs> In an already, like, crazy movie that's, like, such a ridiculous, uh, like, <laughs> like antagonism. My dick doesn't work, so ha-ha. Yeah. Ha. The plotting of this makes it feel more like crime than porn. Like, was I mean, I'm sure it being a Nikatsu pink film, the sex scenes were fairly extended. Um, yeah, there's, like, 
a decent bit of like fucking in the 63 minutes and like a lot of tits and stuff like that. Just because like everything you described within 63 minutes, that sounds like the plotting of like a B noir. Like it's, there's I mean, so is, much it, going on. It Jesus. does have a lot of like noir vibes to it. It's like, I mean, if you can stomach literally all of the things I mentioned, I think, and if you have a taste for pink films, you know what you're getting into. True. So, but like, it was good. I mean, I, the cinematography is really well done. Um, it's crazy and all over the place. Like, s- images you wouldn't see anywhere else. A lot of pissing. <laughs> <laughs> images you wouldn't see anywhere else. A lot of piss shots. Mostly piss shots. <laughs> yeah. I watched a movie with some pissing in it. Lucky you. Yeah, I watched uh, Nomad Land. Oh. <laughs> oh, damn. Are you mad? I uh, know you, Madland. <laughs> hey! <laughs> oh god, I was waiting for that one. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, Madland. I, I don't really want to talk about it. It's not for me. I knew it wasn't going to be for me. I tried. I, I really, I really did try. Um, but there is like some pee and poopy in like the first twenty minutes, which misled me, frankly. <laughs> do you see it like straight up like squirting out of francis mcdermott's beaver because if well, not that's from a long... it's not like <laughs> that's from a long shot <laughs> but film. like it is early on the side of the road early in the film she's peeing and like she she's shaking it off it's pretty funny uh and then she's also uh whiffing around the air with her hand when she takes a freaking crap in the van uh, and it's a, it's a nasty one to the set. The Foley work uh, for that wet crap was pretty good. Lois, this reminds me about that one time I was in Nomadland. And then it's Peter <laughs> taking a, a huge crap, but he's missing the, the, the bucket. And it's just going for like 30 seconds and Stewie's mugging. And he's like, come on, fat man. <laughs> that would be such a good cutaway. Oh my God, hire me, dude. If we can get a Nomadland joke on season 87 of Family Guy... A Nomadland Family Guy episode. (laughs) That might be a little much, but hey, if it takes home Oscar gold. But a good movie I watched this week was Pantyhose Hero, uh, directed by Sam O'Hung, and starring Sam O'Hung. Typical extended clip fashion, you know, downplaying the, you know, the female-made films that are, you know, getting a lot of buzz and, you know, we have to watch our porn, but it's okay. It's all right. It's not porn. (laughs) No, I know. It's a no, Hong Kong action movie. And I know, I know the title, but the title I just I, 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 t- I took it I to know. a different place. It is quite dirty. Um, to like be as crude as possible, it's kind of like uh, cruising the William Friedkin film, but as a Sambo Hung action comedy. And uh, so basically, him and Alan Tam uh, pretend to be a gay couple to infiltrate the Hong Kong underground gay scene and the crime that lurks within and the murder that lurks within. And so obviously it is very problematic. There are a lot of AIDS jokes and jokes about things going in people's bottoms. Um, But it is so like, it's just like dumb comedy that works as an excuse to lead to fight scenes. And uh, if that's always the formula for Sammo, like it, the hit rate is so high that it doesn't really matter how dumb the material is, and some of it is quite funny. There's a really good gag where uh, 
Samo's just being a tough guy. He's like, it doesn't matter. I'll take it like a suppository, whatever you're going to do to me. And the guy just takes out this big, like, durian, like this huge fruit. <laughs> and he's just like, oh! It's just the great mugging moment of the movie. Uh, and it's like the mix of, like, such obvious gay panic mugging humor and some of the most sophisticated action choreography possible uh, is just such a funny dichotomy. And the scene I just described where Samo uh, volunteers to take things up the butt for the good of the team, uh, he's like tied to this wheel and uh, they like roll on this like giant wheel in an empty construction site. It's one of those things where it's like you're watching this Hong Kong action movie and you're like, what is this location? <laughs> There's just this like, it's like a leftover construction set with no real equipment, just all these weird like wheels and chains and shit. But you just know all of it's going to be incorporated into masterful action. So yeah, uh, check out Pantyhose Hero by Sam Hong. And we'll be right back on Extended Club. This is the start of round seven of this World Heavyweight Championship match. Up to this point, it's been a killing pace. Braxton lands a left to the face. Driscoll comes in, lands with a left to the body, crashes a right to the jaw. He's pouring leather on, and the champion forces a clinch here. The referee moves in, parts them. They move back out to the center of the ring. Driscoll is stalking the champion. Lands a left to the face, runs into a crashing right on the button. And we're back on extended clip. It's 99 River Street. It's a B movie by Phil Carlson, released in 1953. And uh, it opens on some boxing, and you get just the thud of the glove against the skin and you just know you're gonna be in for a fucking hardcore film noir okay well i'm this is this was my first carlson and i don't really know like i had heard the name before i just i want i want the rundown boys give me the primer what's what's this what's freaking going on here what's what is this (laughs) well i mean i can't i can't claim to be an expert i really don't know too much but i could give you what i've seen just through the few films i've seen by him um carlson he made independent movies he made uh independent um he made independent movies you know i gotta say it twice and uh they're usually you know very stark and very violent, a little bit more violent than uh, a lot of the noir movies at the time. And it's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, desperate characters, you know, not too far off from noir tropes, but I feel like Carlson, maybe to where it's like, maybe it's a scaled down production size and his love for kind of a visceral action that kind of, uh, I don't know, grounds these movies a little bit more, uh, I guess in somewhat of a, I don't know, maybe not reality, but making you consider the the real problems uh, of of the scenario. Yeah, I mean, reality is an apt way to put it, though. I yeah, mean, true. he even deals with docudrama. Like, his most acclaimed picture maybe is the Phoenix City story. Mm-hmm. I know he did Kansas City Confidential, too. But Phoenix City's story is incredible as, like, a neorealist noir. And it still has that noir expressionism. But it's so down and dirty and also based in reality and has that docudrama feel to it. Um, he is he's really one of the masters of like the B noir and having that uh, simultaneously uh, like gritty and very expressive feeling to his films. And, you know, I, I think I'd previously said maybe on Letterboxd, maybe on here somewhere that like kind of like pre Kung Fu movies or whatever, or martial art movies that like uh, I feel like Fuller was doing kind of like action filmmaking 
the best. And then I, I watched some of the fighting scenes here and like, I mean, I don't know, just the, like you said, the thud on the face, like these, every punch is felt with like so much emotion here in these movies. And it, I mean, it, to the point where it's like, are they actually just punching each other? That might, that might be the case. I think they might just be punching each other. <laughs> I mean, Dave Kerr calls this uh, an example of the kind of humble brilliance that often emerged from the American genre cinema. And I think humble brilliance is a really good way to put it because this knows that it's not like a prestige picture. Uh, it's like an 88 minute, uh, very prototypical ex-boxer noir, you know, <laughs> like he's an ex-boxer who, you know, could have been the champ, but instead he's got an angry wife, you know, <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> uh, but he finds cinematic brilliance in it, whether it's the total artificiality of like that matte background of the skyline up against the boat that they fight on uh, in the finale of the film. Uh, that or just like the realism of the fights and you know a guy falling on his face and landing on a chain like the the brutality of that yeah i was uh thoroughly impressed and i mean it definitely made me want to check out like moral more carlson because this was insane like i love like what you guys are talking about the realistic like brutality of it all that like that like it feels like it actually happened and that mixed with like the crazy twisting and turning of like pulpy noir plotting that I just like it made a, a, an amazing combination. Like there are some moments where it's like when he's involved with that woman who's in the theater and there's that like little theater fake out that happens. Oh. And it's like, a oh, my like, God, I, I hate the theater. Like I hate plays. <laughs> <laughs> like it just makes him pissed off. It's like. <laughs> It's amazing. I would have gone fucking Joker mode if that happened to me. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's just like the the righteous indignation you need for performance art. Fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carlton. Carlton. Uh, Carlton. He's not from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, for God's sakes. Uh, no, no, Carlson. Yeah, he's he's someone who values the real, and it's even shown in you know him being fooled by these. Uh, dramatists, you know, in, in this uh, this very a very dramatic scene too. Carlson is up to the notion of adapting the d drama. That's definitely the most tightly wound dramatic scene, and it's aptly set on a you know a theatrical stage. And you know, one thing I, I really like about this movie and kind of gives it kind of that tightly wound tension that that it, you know it operates on is how desperate everyone is in this movie. There's no kind of like um, all powerful magnate, you know, at the center of it. It really is a lot of people trying to fuck each other over, trying to just make money. I mean, kind of the main conflict that, uh, you know, Carlson and his, uh, not Carlson, um, John Payne, the boxer and his wife have is that, you know, he's not making enough money. He's not getting that dough, you know? So, uh, and it's realist. I don't know. And then like that, that kind of need for money is shown, uh, also just like with the, I don't know. There's like just a great attention to people's jobs too. Like, like uh, just all like the cab location scenes, like the cab station scenes and like that, that character too. It's a, uh... yeah. So John Payne, he was a boxer and now he's a taxi driver and he wants to eventually buy a gas station because that'll be more, you know, steady income. And then he also has a friend who's an actress and she's like, Oh, you got to check out this crime play that I'm in. Well, what's the relationship with the actress girl? 
It's just someone that, like, a diner he goes to. You know, just a familiar, okay. just a, yeah, a trustworthy right. face. Okay. Just a second other. woman, yeah. Yeah, the scene we were describing, which would trigger the IRL, uh, <laughs> it is just a despicable act of theater, kids. <laughs> she tells John Payne, uh, this actress, that uh, she needs help. Something terrible happened, and they, they go into her theater where rehearsal was being held. There's a, there's a dead body one of her associates and she tells the story about uh how this dead body was a producer who was offering for the part and he was to, to not to make too light of it but basically doing the classic hollywood producer thing he went weinstein mode he said i'll give you the job but you know it's going to cost you a little something extra and uh she uh you know beat him to death with a club and she's like, I need your help to cover up the body. You know? And he's like, all right, I figured it out. And he's just like, perfect noir shit where he just on the spot has a line like, uh, what, what does he say about? Take it to an old gravel pit. I'll take him to an old gravel pit where I can bury yeah. him. <laughs> and then that, and that, that, that line is like, I got to give the theater cr- kid credit. His little comment, like the old gravel pit, man, you gave me chills there. Like that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll put the clip in, but there's another line that he said that the guy complimented him on. You're only human. You can only stand so much, then you have to fight back. The harder you hit, the harder you hit back. Murder. Murder. There are worse things than murder. You can kill someone an inch at a time. Uh, but anyway, like he you know, delivers the perfect hard-boiled dialogue, and the monologue is all presented in this crazy long take, too where she, this actress, is just staring down the barrel of the camera, and Carlson is moving in and out a few times over this, like, two-minute long take of a monologue from, like, a close-up to a medium shot, and it's so theatrical and crazy. I I completely bought into it, frankly. I thought this was, like, the route the film was taking. Yeah. I'd seen this movie before, and I'd fell for it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know, this... We do have to, you know, we haven't commented on this, but this is also, uh, you know, put it in your cuck cinema list because this is a a man who gets cucked and then throws everything to the wind and uh, starts uh, punching people. And then once he, I think once he kind of realizes he's alone, there's kind of this visual style that, that, you know, um, that really focuses on him, like uh, the camera's willing, instead of like kind of playing out these scenes where he's like, you know, you see the whole room or like there's coverage or something. You'll have like kind of like sometimes just tracking shots of like him close up and whatnot. And uh, yeah. And then like as as it kind of goes on and he gets outside and he's running, especially towards the end, you kind of get uh, some great portraitures of the city, especially, you know, by the dock. Yeah. And uh, the, the guy who cucks him, uh, this guy Rollins, I guess, is a jewel thief who gets involved with uh, the, the mad wife of Max Payne. <laughs> Uh, or, uh, no, it's not Max Payne. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be sick, though, right? That would be pretty sick. <laughs> John Payne, is that his name? Yeah, that's the actor's name. Oh, okay. What, what's the character's name again? Sorry. Ernie Driscoll. Oh, Ernie yeah. Driscoll. Yes. Ernie. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> Ernie Driscoll. Uh, but the guy who's cooking him, jo- uh, Rollins, the, the jewel thief, um, he... Uh, he deals in this like back room of a pet store 
uh, it, that's like the guy who was gonna buy the diamonds from him that he stole, and I love that just like layer the the world of crime that Carlson builds out at the back room of a pet store uh, with like no budget. <laughs> just imagining all the other shit that these guys do is incredible. And there's one point where uh, he he's trying to shake down the guy uh, Rollins is because he he can't load off the the jewels to him. The guy won't pay him up. And while he's taking a shot of booze, he smacks him across the face with the backhand. And it's one of the most film noir gestures I've ever seen. Uh, Another great performance by the actress character. Uh Her character is named Pauline. Uh, Yeah, another great performance by Pauline is uh, when things are starting to heat up. And I guess she is to distract Rollins uh toward the climax she's at a bar with him and she puts a song on the jukebox and ends up just like dancing with this big dopey guy who uh then that big dopey guy's wife comes in and gets mad and that's pretty funny but then she goes over to like flirt with him to distract him and carlson plays it so fucking sleazy uh he he literally frames her breasts against his face like when she's talking to him like it's a it's this like like this high angle shot down on him and then the right side of the frame is just her chest basically uh and then she leans in and lights a cigarette off of his oh can you imagine that losing a guy to his own wife (laughs) are you married light And that, and also there's another scene where Rollins is with uh, the wife of the lead character, and he is framed through a window, through her legs. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know, he's leaning into the the sleazy noir so hard, it's great. Oh yeah, that's... I, or sorry, there you go. You no, please, I All went right, last well, time, you this okay. time. I don't want to go. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Carlson. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's what kind of makes Carlson stand out, and it, what makes his movies so enjoyable is that Carlson obviously kind of revels in any sort of like brutality and sleaze that's de- displayed on scene, and kind of some of his most energetic filmmaking moments come th- from this kind of like a '50s noir style depravity. And uh, I mean, I think that's just uh, something that just really gives his films the extra punch. Like, like I said, I said, like there's a, I don't know, like, like each punch you could really feel like John John Payne's, uh, you know, kind of like raw emotion to it. A lot, of, yeah. It's also it also solves the problem of, well, this is kind of dumb, but it's like a lot of modern action movie, like action movies, kind of with like a high body count can sometimes. I don't know. Sometimes you want a reason to punch someone. And, uh, you know, Carlson definitely gives you a reason to fucking punch someone. And that's what makes these punches even hit harder. Yeah, I was definitely going to agree with you there in terms of, like, the form being, like, energetic and pulpy and that, like, really matching, like, the brutality of the material. I mean, this isn't as, like, this isn't really a brutal moment, but it's like an aggressive sort of movement that fits like the heat of the moment. There's like a zoom or like a push in where like um, he's he's saying, so I'm married to a tramp. And just like that intensity there, like with that reveal, it's just I don't know. It's exactly what you want from like a B noir. 
Mm-hmm. But it's also there's something like like a, like Carlson's dedication to the real this character, right? It's like it's not like he like flips a switch, he gets cucked, and then he goes on a you know starts mowing people down. You know, it's like you have those interactions like him and his boss who used to be his, you know, boxing trainer back in the day when he kind of blows up at him and kind of, and then you kind of have the decompression from that scene where he realizes, you know, like, fuck, like I, I'm kind of overreacting here and like, you're not the one I'm angry at. Exactly. That I think in a lot of other filmmakers work, you wouldn't get that type of apology there where it's like, he's sort of, he doesn't like, it would be pretty one note, um, for the acting as well, if you kept him like staying on hot, and it's like you instead you get these like great like sort of violent outbursts where it feels like what he's been suppressing by like not boxing is just like unexpectedly emerging forth in little moments of aggression where yeah. it's like he can he can keep it pressed down but like at some points it just jumps out and that's like it makes it all the more unpredictable and i love how you know toward the end uh, all, all the major players kind of meet up by the docks and as <laughs> i said earlier there's that great matte painting of the skyline of the city uh, and the artificiality and the realism clash in that scene more than in anything else, really, uh, or in any other scene in the movie. Uh, it ends up with him getting in a fist fight on like the steps of a boat with Rollins. And once he's down, he has this audio flashback to the boxing. And, you know, we hear the commentators of his old boxing match and uh, it, it's really great in that that shot that I described the close-up of his face falling and hitting a chain is so brutal but also such a great way to flash back to him being up against the ropes in a boxing match uh, speaking of chains uh, Rollins also whips a guy in the head with a chain at one point, <laughs> which is so sick yeah I think like yeah there's a good balance between like um giving a motivation behind the violence and also just like fun stuff like that you know a little good chain head whipping. The chain whipping is during the most chaotic violence. Like before yeah. the two of them go one on one, like there's like seven people in the frame and they're all just hitting each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Car- I think Carlson's like, uh, he wants to legitimize, legitimize. Um, <laughs> one of these days I need to get legitimized. <laughs> legitimized. That's what he wants to do. Right. He wants to, uh, <laughs> Um, he wants to like, I don't know, show like these violent urges and pain is not like, um, I don't know. He's not like a crazy guy. He doesn't have like a, I mean, he has like maybe some psychological condition, but not, you know, one that probably a lot of people, you know what I mean? Just, uh, you know, you take a lot of hits, but you know, something's, yeah. something's bound to break. But, uh, I really love yeah. the stupid happy ending that is not even necessary because it's not a Hollywood <laughs> movie. It's like you have this 15 minute, totally brutal climax Uh, that ends with everyone just completely bloodied Uh, Mm -hmm. and then it's just like a year later well you know uh me and pauline we we co-own a gas station we're together now and uh (laughs) pretty cool (laughs) goals you know that's i mean carlson knows you know fighting people that's fun but you know it's also what's the best feeling finding someone you love and building a business with them so uh (laughs) pure hustle Love and hustle meets and become something beautiful. Something yeah, that's something I feel like the motivational mindset pages don't really realize. 
You can like you don't have to hate all women all the time for the potential wrongdoings they could do you. You could start a business together. You could use her like hustle. She knows how to hustle men. She can use that mindset in business. You can yeah. combine your mentalities. Come on. I think what you're locating here is that the male souls of the world, the men's quotes of the world, they don't have pimp mindset. You know what I mean? Yeah, they have. Yeah. They they want to be CEOs. They want to be. Uh, they want to be the guy in intolerance that like uh, lowers everyone's uh, pay down ten cents. What they what they should be is someone like a pimp making money on the outskirts. That's all I gotta say. And if there are you know, CEO guys, like I maybe take a look at some of these CEOs, some of the, some of these women CEOs. You know, I uh, in terms of corporate America, the uh, the sisters are doing it for themselves these days. <laughs> I love when women get that money, man. It just gets me hyped. <laughs> I think this is an incredible film. I, I, I honestly think I underrated it when I was watching it because now it's like every scene that I'm thinking back to is totally just money. And like the the camera movement when he uses long still takes versus when he is going handheld and crazy, uh, the milieu of the the taxi station uh, and the bar. It's like all these places feel very real, but they're also just these like fucking shitty low budget sets. Like, uh, and it's it's pure B movie magic. I'm going four and a half bullets on this one. Yeah, I think this is a great movie. And uh, yeah, it takes its kind of, you know, the conditions, the kind of low budget it has, and kind of, you know, leans into it, gives it a gritty feel, but also does a good job at like, I don't know, just at the good, like technical parts of filmmaking, like, yeah, selling a location that's, you know, not that well, um, not as well dressed as you could afford, or anything like that. And to quote the poster, this is a great poster. Look up the poster of this movie. One of my favorite poster. The picture that lays it all on the line. I think it does. Um, never have you been hit with such battering ram violence, such sheer negligee excitement, such brutal savagery. This truly is the last stop in the waterfront's underworld. So I'm going to give it four bullets. Damn, that's powerful. I'm uh, also going to give it four bullets. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you guys say. It's uh, like there's a whole lot of humble artistry here. Uh, that doesn't like, I mean, I think a lot of what it's doing, like formally does, like it's unavoidable that it, like you're paying attention to it, but it's not something that's trying to be showy. It just does a very good job at presenting like everything you want in a noir and uh great picture. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, oh, we have shit. an email this week. Okay, okay, thank God. Uh, <laughs> thought maybe we didn't. <laughs> we do. That's that's it, right? All of us went. Sorry. Yeah, we, we went. went. Yeah, we went. It's yeah. Were you not listening? Emails. Uh, <laughs> no, emails. Joking, it's joking. a fucking no, time for the emails. <laughs> I know. I know. I. I... <laughs> I'm sorry. This is really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> Our email for this week, uh, and of course, you know, this is really everyone's favorite segment, uh, the email segment, and uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. That's 
extended clip podcast at gmail.com e-x-t-e-n-d-e-d-c-l-i-p-p-o-d-c-a-s-t at g-m-a-i-l-e dot c-o-m call now (laughs) (laughs) money bit uh Shut up. <laughs> I thought it was fun in my head. No, it is. I... I'll cut it. I'm oh. just waiting no, at the edge no, of my don't, seat don't for me, this fucking email. Don't let me influence the editor. Our question comes from Valerie. Uh, it says, hey, fellas. I've asked basically every, every question about movies I have. <laughs> so I have a different type of question for you guys. A podcast question. Okay. What was the first podcast you remember listening to an episode of? If you can't remember, that's completely fine too. Thanks, Valerie. Well, thanks for leaving the option for us not remembering. <laughs> I'm glad we have a, a way out here. Also, shout out to Valerie, who's kind of been the the anchor of the email segment. Probably we'd probably shut it down if it wasn't for you. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, there was probably like some interviews I listened to on YouTube uh, before I ever listened to a podcast that technically were podcasts and I didn't know like what it was or whatever. But like 20, 2013, yeah, like Hollywood Handbook was like the first one I listened to whenever that first started. Like, I, I think it was like 20 episodes in when my friend passed guest to the show, Roger Carnow. Uh, I think he had tried me get to tried to get me into other podcasts before. I remember in high school he told me about Mega sixty four. I was like, I'm not gonna do this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, yeah, he told me about Hollywood Handbook, and I, I kind of got into all the different kind of uh, comedy podcasts from there. I, I, I think I remember at a very young age um, searching on like the iTunes store for Smosh. I just wanted Smosh content the YouTube channel Smosh. And I think I, uh, like, under the podcast section, they had, like, some sort of video podcast. And, like, I watched that for, like, five minutes. And I was like, well, this isn't really that funny. You know, I'm more of a fan of the sketch videos. So I stopped watching. So I think that was technically the first podcast I listened to. But then after that, I have to say that my memory is a little muddy. But uh, I a couple of the first, I guess, I'll get I'll say this, the first film podcast. Oh, well, I okay. Sorry for talking, interrupting myself like seven times there. But <laughs> I do remember listening because I was a big Hannibal Burris fan, 2013, 20, whenever he first started getting really popular, I think. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to hear an interview with him. And I think I listened to a very early episode of the Joe Rogan podcast that he was being interviewed on. But I, I don't think I listened for that much long either because I, I didn't know who Joe Rogan was. And um, now I'm interested because he's he's famous. But back then, I don't I don't I didn't really care. But uh, um, but then like the first I, I remember listening to consistently were film spotting. And then there's this other podcast that's defunct like since 2016 called smug film and uh, i had this i remember this guy john D'Amico, who was on there he had some good taste he definitely put me on to some some good stuff two film recommendations i remember from that podcast that stick with me um 80 blocks from tiffany which is like this really good um new york gang documentary that like kind of just highlights the strangeness of the gangs like you have like latino and black gangs wearing like nazi or like swastikas and stuff like that. It's just a just a crazy time. And then um, the Kiss Before the Mirror by James Whale, early pre-code film. 
that just goes incredibly hard. One of the best yeah. plots I've ever heard. Um, since you said film spotting, I should say that was like the first film podcast I listened to too. Mm-hmm. Uh, early in my pod listening, like 2013, when I was going to community college, that's all I did was I, you know, I found a new medium, podcast. <laughs> I was obsessed with it. And uh, oh boy, there are definitely some film spottings from like I think I definitely emailed into the show and they like read my name on that show <laughs> in like 2013 or 2014. It's yeah, I you know at a certain point you just you grow up. But uh, if any, any anyone who listens to this still listens to film not sit, listens to film spotting, no offense. And also, it's cool to write into podcasts. Yeah, always very cool. <laughs> you should do that. Yeah, you should do that for next week. So we have something to film this segment. JC, what was the first podcast you ever listened to? Um, I feel like I have like uh embarrassing um first <laughs> film podcast or I mean not film podcasts. I don't really listen to film podcasts. I think like the first, the earliest memories I have of like any kind of podcast content is like some of the comedy bang bang stuff. Oh, like, for sure. um, the, uh, I remember the, like watching on YouTube clips of, uh, the Dalton Wilcox lonesome cowboy poem that sticks like firm in my craw from that as a young man. And then honestly, like, to be frank, I like Chapo was the first thing I started listening to like consistently mm. around like 2016. A real JT come lately. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't uh, recognize the medium as artistic. I uh, I was shutting myself off. If if any listeners are welcome to get back to the roots, um, yeah, listen to uh, I don't know Howard Stern. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly the best <laughs> podcaster there is. Listen, to, yeah. Howard Stern, film spotting, return to tradition. <laughs> Andy and and what? Opie and Anthony. Oh, I thought you said Andy and <laughs> Opie. Opie and Anthony. Uh, yeah, it's Opie and Andy from Amos and Andy. Yeah. <laughs> that listen- would be the most racist show of all time. <laughs> Just listen to Opie, not not Anthony. Anthony's up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, the reverse of it. Amos and Anthony. That would be the most racist show of all time. I, I had that in my mind. I was like, I don't know. Like, I was, I was trying. I was workshopping that like the Nomad Land joke, but I, I wasn't gonna get off in time. <laughs> all right. Um, next week, you know what we're doing next week? We're, you know, people people say that travel's not safe right now, but we're going to Berlin. <laughs> That's what I have to say to them. Also, we want to keep the plane companies open. <laughs> we have accused the social climbing critical class of a lot of things in the past. And I just like, bygones be bygones. I don't, we're on that come up. Like, hey, like I, look, I don't care what flight logs you're on or what you've had to do to get in this industry. I'm right there with you now, brother. So, uh, hey, I, I don't your your dad's company had to get copper from that country. I can't blame them. <laughs> they were going to the, the copper was going to get taken anyways. <laughs> he did it in a much more humane way. <laughs> anyway, we are uh, we're, we're virtually attending the Berlin Film Festival Berlin Ale next week. And. We're going to do a double feature of uh, two of the films from the first couple of the days of the festival. 
And frankly, I don't know how much we're going to even watch from the festival. The lineup, not so hot, I gotta say. <laughs> Step your game up. That's <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the accreditation. Step your game up. No Clint? No. Yeah, no Clint Eastwood? No, no Cry Macho? Come on. Where Get Cry Macho in there. Um, but our double feature next week is going to be Introduction, a new film by Hong Sang-soo. And The Scary of 61st a new film by Dasha Nekrasova. So, yeah, that'll be next week's episode. <laughs> we got so much shit up our sleeve. So much shit up my ass. Uh, let's... <laughs> uh, goodbye. <laughs> this is a goofy episode. Let's yeah, end this one. <laughs> Pussy.